Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was a crime that gripped the nation. A beautiful wife and mother was found bludgeoned to death in the garage of her suburban home on the outskirts of Toronto. It was July 1973, and a violent murder was not something that the Mississauga police were accustomed to dealing with. But their suspicions soon fell on the woman's husband, a wealthy Hungarian-Canadian developer named Peter Demeter. He was a man who had it all. Family, friends, success, and wealth. But he wanted more, and murder was much cheaper than divorce. Convicted of hiring a hitman to kill his wife, Peter Demeter was sentenced to life in prison in 1974. But being incarcerated was never an obstacle to Peter Demeter's evil plans. He continued his criminal scheming from behind bars. Arson, kidnapping, torture, and even murder. For those he wanted dead, he stopped at nothing to make it happen. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast series, I'm bringing you the true story of a man whose hatred knows no bounds. He has been called a master manipulator, whose mind is a great reservoir of evil that contaminates everyone around him. And at 87, and crippled by disease, the Canadian Parole Board has refused to release him from prison saying he still poses a significant threat to society. This is Unrepentant Killer, The Life and Crimes of Peter Demeter. Episode 1, Model Wife. Wednesday, July 18th, 1973 was going to be a hot summer day in the sleepy bedroom community of Mississauga, Ontario. Situated just west of Toronto, the municipality was an easy commute to the downtown core of Canada's largest urban centre. And it was a place where you could buy a large two-storey detached on a spacious lot for a lot less than in the city. 
For the couple living at 1437 Dundas Crescent, the day was shaping up to be a busy one, with a house full of -of out-of-town guests who were anxious to do some sightseeing and shopping. Peter and Christine Demeter had moved into their $100,000 dream home in the exclusive Arendelle neighborhood a year earlier. He was a successful 40-year-old Hungarian-born real estate developer, and she was a 33-year-old Austrian beauty, a former fashion model turned homemaker. The couple who had originally met in Vienna had been married for six years. They had a -a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Andrea, and a beloved spaniel named Beezlebub. For Christine, the house on Dundas Crescent was their first real family home. They had moved many times as Peter grew his housing development portfolio. The large, attractive house with a double-car garage was situated on two acres of land on a dead-end street. The backyard gardens sloped onto an extensive, dense ravine. This gave the Demeters plenty of privacy, particularly in the summer months when they spent most of their time out by the pool. Christine liked to lay in the sun every chance she got to maintain her rich golden tan, and she swam 40 lengths in the pool every evening. Christine had always been physically active, and at five foot nine, she had a perfect figure. By 9 a.m. that summer morning, the Demeter house was buzzing with activity. They had five female house guests, and everyone was already in the pool. Dr. Sybil Brewer was a friend of Peter's visiting from Hartford, Connecticut. She had brought her two German nieces with her, Katya and Celia. The two other house guests were also teenagers, a Canadian friend of the German girls, and Vivica Esso, the daughter of one of Peter's distant relatives. After a hearty breakfast prepared by Christine, Peter announced to the group that they would be heading into the city. Peter had to stop by a few of his work sites to check on their progress, and the German girls wanted to shop for some authentic native Canadian moccasins. The day before had been spent sightseeing at the Science Centre, an Ontario place. Vivica was tired and wanted to lounge by the pool all day. But Peter finally convinced the 16-year-old to join them. It was hard to say no to Peter. For their trip into Toronto, they would have to take Christine's car, an oyster-colored Mercedes, because Peter's larger Cadillac was stuck in the garage. The automatic door on that side of the double garage was an opening. The Mercedes-Benz had been sort of a gift for Christine. Peter had bought it for $15,000, but Christine was supposed to have contributed at least $3,000 towards it, but she never did. Peter often complained that Christine had no sense of money, so he kept her on a tight budget. He gave her an allowance of $240 a month, plus $600 for household expenses. Christine was expected to provide receipts for any money she spent. For anyone who spent time with the Demeters, they would tell you that arguments over money were commonplace. It was a tight squeeze for Peter and his five house guests to fit into the Mercedes, and Peter had even insisted on bringing Beezlebub the Spaniel 
along for the day. But with everyone finally gone, Christine was looking forward to a relaxing day by the pool. By noon, Peter and his out-of-town guests were downtown Toronto at the corner of Front and Bay Street. Sybil Brewer, her German nieces, and their friend jumped out of the Mercedes and headed towards the Young Street Mall. Young Street, the world's longest street, had been closed to cars for the summer, and it had been turned into a pedestrian mall with sidewalk cafes, street vendors, and open-air shops. Hopefully, the perfect place to find Canadian souvenirs. Peter agreed to pick them up later, while he and 16-year-old Vivica drove off. Vivica's parents were old friends of Peter's, and Vivica considered him to be an uncle type of figure. Born in Toronto, Vivica had moved back to Austria with her dad when her parents divorced. She wasn't sure which country she preferred, but was enjoying her lazy summer vacation back in Canada. While they drove around town to Peter's various building sites, Peter kept the conversation going. He was in a talkative mood. Vivica had always found her Uncle Peter to be somewhat odd and scattered with his thoughts, but on this day, his conversations were all over the place. Peter talked about a recent holiday he and Christine had taken to Acapulco. They had not had a good time. He told Vivica that his marriage to Christine was on the rocks and that he was having an affair with his first true love, a woman named Marina Hunt from Vienna. According to Peter, he and Marina had just spent a romantic week together in Montreal to rekindle their relationship. He said years earlier, Marina had refused to marry him and he had married Christine on the rebound. But he still loved Marina and wanted to be with her. For Vivica, Peter's declaration of infidelity seemed very strange and inappropriate. Why was he telling her this? She really liked Christine. Besides, she had her own parents' messy divorce to deal with. She certainly didn't want to get involved in another one. Vivica listened as Peter carried on, but she was more than happy when they returned to pick up the others at the Young Street shopping mall. Back at the house on Dundas Crescent, Christine was chatting with her neighbor, David Tennant, who had come over for a quick swim while Andrea was playing with her 14-year-old babysitter, Rose Papastamos, and Rose's two sisters. Christine offered David one of her famous open-faced Austrian sandwiches and a beer, although she never ate lunch herself, always being conscious of her weight. David and his wife had spent some casual time with the Demeters since they had moved in next door a year earlier, but they weren't particularly close. When Rose and her sisters finished playing in the pool that afternoon, Christine asked Rose if she would be available to babysit the following Friday. Rose said she would. Christine liked the young Greek girl, and little Andrea loved spending time with her. "'Why don't you come over tonight?' asked Christine." say, between 5 and 8 p.m.? She didn't know what time Peter and their house guests would be back, and she wanted some company. Rose didn't have the heart to say no to Mrs. Demeter, 
even though she knew she had another babysitting job that night. She agreed to come back to the house later that evening, but she never did. When she left, Mrs. Demeter was lying on the diving board, sunbathing. With everyone back in the Mercedes, Peter drove to one of his building sites in Toronto's Riverdale neighbourhood. Peter was having a successful year. He had already sold six houses, and he had several others under development. He was constantly meeting with architects, tradespeople, realtors, and buyers. On this day, he said he was looking for one of his contractors, but couldn't seem to locate the man. During lunch at a nearby cafe, Peter tried reaching the contractor by a payphone, but was unsuccessful. However, he did inform the group that he had spoken to Christine and everything was fine back at the house. After lunch, the group returned to the Riverdale construction site so Peter could try to locate the contractor he seemed so desperate to talk to. But once again, he was unsuccessful. And by 4 p.m., Peter, his friend Sybil Brewer, and the four teenagers were back in Mississauga at the house on Dundas Crescent. While the Demeter's guests headed straight for the pool after a long, hot day in the city, Christine began preparing a German-inspired dinner. Peter went outside to fix the broken garage door. He kept trying to force the door down, but part of the mechanism was broken. He eventually called for Christine, and they finally managed to get it closed. But before dinner could be served, Peter had one more appointment. He had invited some real estate colleagues over to discuss selling the house. Rick Vera, the vice president of a Mississauga real estate company, had arrived early for their meeting, so he decided to wait in his car for his associate, Carolyn White. A few minutes later, a beige Volkswagen bug pulled into the Demeter's driveway. But it wasn't Caroline. There were three men in the car. They stopped for about 30 seconds, backed out, and left. Probably nothing unusual, thought Rick, since the Demeter's driveway was the last one on a dead-end street. They probably got a lot of turnarounds. Rick Verup and Caroline White were at the Demeter's to appraise the value of their house. Peter was thinking of selling it to move into a Toronto property he wanted to convert into condominiums. By moving and establishing the Toronto development as his principal residence, he could avoid paying capital gains tax on any profit he made on the development in the future. It was a tax scam he had used in the past. It had saved him lots of money, but his family was constantly being uprooted. Christine did not want to move again and made her opinion clear to the realtors. Rick and Caroline left a listing agreement with Peter. It was for $140,000, $40,000 more than Peter had paid for the house, a tidy profit in just a year. He was ready to sign on the dotted line, but he told his real estate colleagues he would need to talk it over with Christine. The presence of the realtors had put a strain on the evening, so when the Demeters and their guests finally sat down to the German dinner Christine had prepared, tension filled the air. Peter was in a bad mood, and Christine complained about a pain in her back. And one of the German girls was unhappy too. 
She hadn't found the Canadian moccasins she so desperately wanted. Sensing an opportunity to get away from her unhappy hosts, Dr. Sybil Brewer suggested she would drive the girls to Yorkdale Shopping Mall in her car. No, I'll drive you, insisted Peter. The younger girls could shop for moccasins, but he wanted Vivica to come along too, to help him to pick out a gift for Christine's name day. For European Catholics, it was customary to honor one's Saint's Day with a small gift, and St. Christina's Day was less than a week away. Christine didn't seem impressed with Peter's public display of love and generosity. She knew it was always just a show for others. What about dessert? asked Christine. She had made an apple strudel. We'll have coffee and dessert when we get back, announced Peter. Just as the group was heading out for another shopping excursion at approximately 7.45 that evening, the Demeter's gardener arrived. Ernest Kosnick was a full-time mailman with six children. To supplement his postal salary, he took on part-time gardening work during the evenings and weekends. That evening, he was finally getting around to spraying the Demeter's property for weeds. Since the property was surrounded by a high fence, Ernest would usually go through the garage to access the backyard. But on that night, the key to the garage door was missing. He would have to see if the Demeters were home to let him into the backyard. But just as he was heading to the front door, Peter appeared. Ernest told him he was there to spray for weeds, but couldn't get into the garage and the backyard. Peter looked surprised to see the gardener and asked him if he could come back another day. Peter told him he had a house full of guests and didn't want the garden sprayed while they were there. Ernest thought the request made sense since the weed killer did smell. No problem, he would come back another time. The doctor and the teenagers piled back into Christine's Mercedes to head to the shopping mall. Then, Peter picked up Beezlebub and put her into the already cramped car. "'You're not taking the dog along, too, are you?' asked a clearly annoyed Christine. Peter said something back in German. Even Peter's friend Sybil was surprised that he was bringing the dog. But Peter insisted, and once he got something into his head, it wasn't worth the aggravation of arguing about it. At 8.15 p.m., Peter and his passengers arrived at the Yorkdale Shopping Centre. Built in 1964, the shopping centre was the world's largest indoor mall with over 1.3 million square feet of floor space and 6,500 parking spots. Accessible only by car at the time, it had 110 stores, restaurants and movie theatres. There was something for every kind of shopper and every level of pocketbook. While Sybil and the girls headed off in search of beaded moccasins, Peter wanted to check out Henry Burke's jewelers. He told Vivica he was thinking of a silver locket for Christine. But when they got to the mall entrance, the doors clearly stated that animals were not allowed inside. Peter asked Vivica to look around the jewelry store while he took Beezlebub back to the car. Vivica later recalled that Peter was gone for what seemed to be an extra long time. 
but then he finally joined her in the high-end jewelry store. While Peter shopped, Vivica wandered around the store. A few minutes later, when she looked up, she noticed Peter talking on a store phone. Who was he talking to? As Vivica approached him, he waved her away. But a few minutes later, he handed her the green push-button receiver. It was Christine. But then she put little Andrea on the phone. Andrea said that her and her mummy wanted Vivica to come back to the house. Vivica laughed at the three-year-old's request and said they would be home soon. By the time everyone was finished shopping, it was 9.15 p.m. Yorkdale Shopping Centre was approximately 22 miles, or 35 kilometres, from the Demeter's home. Half an hour later, as Peter pulled into his secluded driveway, he looked at his watch. It's exactly 9.45, he announced. We're just in time for coffee. The house was in darkness. It looked like Christine had forgotten to turn on the outside lights for them. Peter pressed the automatic garage door opener and slowly inched the Mercedes up the driveway. It was a tight fit to get the convertible into the double garage next to his wide Cadillac sedan. Suddenly, Peter slammed on the brakes. With a sudden jolt, the girls in the back seat ceased their teenage chattering. There was something on the floor of the garage. The headlights of the convertible gleamed off a figure on the ground. It was a body sprawled beside the passenger door of the Cadillac. Pools of dark red blood surrounded the lifeless form. Oh my God, yelled Peter. The girls screamed. Taking in the horrifying scene, Sybil Brewer jumped out of the car. Her medical training as a doctor had instantly taken over. Trying not to step in the blood, which was seeping out of the garage and onto the driveway, Sybil bent over the lifeless form lying on the concrete floor. She recognized the long hair, matted with congealed blood and tissue and the ankle-length backless sundress, exposing well-tanned skin and muscular shoulders. It was Christine Demeter. But where was Andrea, the Demeter's three-and-a-half-year-old daughter? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The call came into the police station at 9.51 p.m. on Wednesday, July 18, 1973. At first, Constable Glenn Lumber didn't think it sounded all that serious. The male voice on the other end of the phone was saying something about an accident in a garage and that his wife was bleeding. The man had a heavy foreign accent, so it was hard for the police officer to understand what he was saying. Within a few minutes, the man had calmed down and was able to answer the constable's questions. The police officer jotted down, Mr. P. Demeter, 1437 Dundas Crescent, possible suicide attempt. He then handed the slip of paper to his dispatcher and the call went out. Constable Pullett pulled his yellow-marked police car into the circular driveway of the Dundas Crescent house. It was an upscale area with luxury homes. It wasn't a high-crime neighborhood, although there had been some recent break-ins. But this sounded more like a mental health call. Dispatch had radioed a PAS, possible attempted suicide. But as soon as he spotted the woman's body lying in a large pool of blood on the garage floor, he knew there was nothing possible about the scene. Someone was definitely dead. He approached the body. There appeared to be deep wounds to the back of the head. He bent down and tried to feel for a pulse on the ankle. Nothing. He turned to the man standing over the body who identified himself as the victim's husband. I'm sorry, sir, but it's my feeling your wife is dead. The man showed little reaction. In fact, he seemed annoyed. He wanted to know what right did the police officer have to declare his wife dead. They should wait for the ambulance. The man then insisted his wife must have had an accident. 
she must have been reaching for something up in the rafters of the garage and had fallen. Constable Pollitt wasn't sure what to make of the man's demeanor. Maybe he was in shock. The police officer suggested that they wait in his cruiser for the ambulance to arrive. He asked the man his name. Peter Demeter, the man said. And what was his wife's name? Christine, with an E at the end, he replied. Then the man suddenly said, Can we do this later? There's just too much excitement. It wasn't quite the reaction the constable expected from a man whose wife was lying dead on the floor of their garage. As more police arrived, both in uniform and in plain clothes, Peter Demeter seemed to get increasingly annoyed. Why was everyone just standing around? Why wasn't the ambulance taking Christine to the hospital? He demanded to know who was in charge. Patrol Sergeant Murray was currently the senior officer on the scene. He advised Peter he was in charge. Then why aren't you doing something, Peter demanded. I am, replied Sergeant Murray. I'm starting an investigation. In response, Peter nodded his head towards the garage where his wife was lying in a pool of blood. Well then, can't you get her out of here, he asked. Sergeant Murray was so taken aback by Peter's request, he pulled Constable Pollitt aside to ask him if the man had been advised that his wife was dead. Yes, said Pollitt. For the first police officers on the scene at 1437 Dundas Crescent, the dead woman's husband was already arousing suspicion. Retired Brockville Police Chief Barry King was a detective constable in the Mississauga Police Force in 1973. And to this day, he can remember getting the call to attend a crime scene not far from his own home. I was the one of the two primary investigators, uh, Chris O'Toole and myself. I lived just around the corner from Peter. And uh, I forget what day it was or what night it was. But anyhow, the, uh, they had called a couple of people and couldn't get them. So they, uh, the uh, Bill Taggart, uh, who was the superintendent, had them call me. And I hadn't been on the force very long, but I had a lot of experience. So I got there and uh, Chris uh, showed up. He was uh, like a full freaking detective. I was just a constable at the time, detective constable. I'd say that we were probably suspicious of the way the uh, the garage was, and Peter was standing there. You couldn't get him out of the garage, um, you know. So uh, Bernie Burns uh, was just a, a patrol constable, but he got a relationship going with him and walked him up down the driveway and that type of stuff. Uh, but it, it just seemed very weird. Just after 11 p.m. Bill Taggart's phone rang in his Streetsville home. His two kids had already gone to bed, and he and his wife were watching TV. His work colleagues usually didn't bother him at home, but they knew he usually stayed up late, and on this night, they were going to need his help. Bill Taggart was a cop, but not just a regular cop. He was superintendent in charge of criminal investigations for the city of Mississauga. 
the son of an Irish immigrant, he had joined the police force at 26 and had worked his way up the chain of command. He was widely respected for his tenacity and hard work. He had proven himself with some tough cases, but he wasn't one to rest on his laurels. Now at 43, he was in charge of all the detectives on the force. And it was one of his star detectives on the phone that night, Detective Sergeant Chris O'Toole. Taggart knew O'Toole wouldn't call him at home unless it was serious. And by what the detective was telling him about a crime scene at 1437 Dundas Crescent, Taggart needed to get there right away. By 11.55, just two hours after the emergency call from the Demeter's home was logged at the Mississauga Police Station, Superintendent Bill Taggart was standing in their double garage looking down at the body of Christine Demeter. One of the first things he noticed was the blood. Not the quantity, and there was a lot of blood, but rather the color. It was bright red, indicating that the woman had died very recently, possibly only minutes before she had been discovered. The female victim was lying face down on the cement floor with her hands tucked underneath her like she was sleeping. She lay next to the couple's Cadillac. She was wearing a long ankle-length backless brown gown with silver slippers, one of which had come off and was lying beside her body. She had several small bruises on her body and a massive head wound to the back of her skull. Her long, thick hair was matted with congealed blood and brain matter. Taggart knew instantly that they were not dealing with an accident or suicide. Christine Demeter had been murdered. Taggart continued to look around the garage. It appeared that the woman lying on the cement floor had been bludgeoned to death with a heavy instrument. Blood spatter on the Cadillac showed a pattern indicating a murder weapon being raised and pounded down repeatedly. Maybe a hammer or a tire iron, but there was no sign of anything like that in the garage. Taggart ordered a search of the property, but darkness was going to hamper their efforts. Had Christine surprised an intruder trying to break into the house or possibly steal the Cadillac? None of the doors or windows appeared to have been tampered with, and little Andrea had been found safely inside watching television. The three-year-old little girl had no idea that her beautiful mother was lying dead in the garage. At 12.50 a.m., back at the Arendelle Police Station, Detective Sergeant Chris O'Toole and Detective Barry King were finally sitting down to talk to the victim's husband. Chris and I went back and we, we talked to Peter. And he was uh, always um, playing one-upmanship. Peter Demeter had already been at the station for over two hours, and his mood had not improved with the passage of time. What's going on here, he demanded to know. Am I under arrest? The detectives assured him he wasn't, but they did need to ask him some questions. They knew that Peter had already told another officer 
that he and his wife Christine had a troubled marriage and were drifting apart. He had also volunteered some other information that piqued the officer's attention. He had a $1 million life insurance policy on his wife. Now, the investigating detectives wanted to keep him talking. But before they could ask him anything further, Peter said he wanted to call his lawyer. Sergeant O'Toole handed him the phone, but Peter declined, saying he only wanted the option of knowing he could. Was this the beginning of a strange, antagonistic game Mr. Demeter was planning to play with the police? He was obviously an intelligent and educated man, but his arrogance and aggression were not winning him any points with the detectives. Now, how are you going to conduct this, he asked the detectives. Am I going to be treated as a man who just lost his wife or as a suspected murderer? The police found it strange that Peter was already expecting their suspicions to fall on him. Detective Sergeant Chris O'Toole assured him they were only investigating the circumstances surrounding Christine's death and wanted to know where he had been the previous evening. But Peter wouldn't answer them. First, I want you to answer a question for me, he said. Tell me how she died. Peter's condescending attitude was really rubbing the police the wrong way. He was an arrogant, elitist businessman that uh, thought that he had it over you all the time. While O'Toole was interviewing Peter, Detective Superintendent Taggart was speaking with Dr. Stephen Demeter and his wife, Marjorie. Stephen, a psychologist, was Peter's cousin, his closest family member living in Canada, and he was anxious to assist the police in any way he could. Stephen told Taggart that Peter and Christine had marital difficulties in the past, but lately it seemed that they had been getting along. Stephen and his wife were asked to take the Demeter's daughter, Andrea, home with them. Taggart had tried to talk to the little girl, but soon determined that she hadn't heard or seen anything. A small blessing, thought the seasoned cop. It was three o'clock in the morning when Detective Superintendent Taggart finally sat down in front of Peter Demeter. It was a meeting that would change both of their lives forever. On the next episode of Unrepentant Killer, The Life and Crimes of Peter Demeter. This is awful. This is a young mother. She was 33 years old. Her little three-and-a-half-year-old daughter was watching TV when the murder occurred in, in the living room and uh, was now left without a, without a mother and all. Like, it, you know, we aren't living in a movie. Like, this is real. The police continue their investigation into the brutal murder of Christine Demeter while her wealthy husband offers a $10,000 reward for any information leading to the apprehension of her killer. But the focus of the murder investigation begins to quickly shift from a random intruder to someone much closer to the victim as they learn more about the victim's husband. The guy I talked to, you won't say him in the book, his name is John Gray. He was a patrol sergeant at the time, big, big husky English guy. And anyway, 
he was one of the first responders at the scene, one of the detectives or anybody. And he said um, they were suspicious of him right away because, first of all, he wasn't the slightest bit upset. And uh, when they started talking to him, like the first thing he was saying was, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the hose is uh, stored up there in that shelf up, uh, uh, near this, you know, the roof of the garage, ceiling of the garage. I th- I th- she must have you know, tried to climb on the car to go and get the hose and then fallen off and, and hit her head. Like he was offering up his theory of the, uh, the death uh, before anybody asked him. For a man with an airtight alibi, after all, he was miles away shopping for a gift for his wife. Why is Peter Demeter acting so suspicious? Unrepentant Killer. The Life and Crimes of Peter Demeter is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. A special thank you to Jim Bailey and Barry King. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.